Let's pray once more. Our God and our Father, we thank you that the words that we have just sang are true, and that the words that we have just read are true, that you are there, and you are our shepherd, and you lead us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. And in the face of all of our enemies, you prepare a table for us. Before even our greatest enemy, death, you prepare a table for us of the richest, most satisfying foods. So we say thank you. Thank you that you're the God who is there, that you are so, so good to your people. And we ask now that you would enliven our faith. Grant us to hear your words clearly. Please grant them. Please grant blessing to the reading of your word and to the preaching of your word now. Let your word be clear. Let it resonate deeply within us and produce a rich harvest of faith and hope and love. Please get much glory now from your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we turn again to Psalm 23. In the verse before us, Psalm, verse 5, the psalm takes a surprising, even strange turn when you think about it. Up until this point, David, the king, who knows he's a sheep, has been extolling the greatness of his shepherd. But now the, this, this image of the shepherd changes from a lord who reigns over him with a rod and a staff to comfort him from a shepherd to a host. A host who prepares David a meal. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. We have spoken of those enemies before. In his infinite wisdom, David's good shepherd, Yahweh, is leading him through the valley of the shadow of death. With enemies all around, hidden in the darkness on every side of the valley, David cannot see them, but his shepherd can. And then at just the moment when we might expect this strong shepherd to take his rod and go to war against all those evils and those enemies, he unexpectedly, ironically, prepares a meal for David. He, trains, he trades in his camo for a waiter's apron. Surprising, ironic. David's shepherd delights to provide for his sheep the sweetest of feasts, and we we need to hear this message today. We need to hear what this means because we, we live in a generation that is going through the valley of the shadow of death. Our culture is going through the valley of the shadow of death. So there's something crucial here for us to know what do we do? What do we do as we go through this time? And the first thing that we will need to do today is to repent and believe Believe that David's shepherd is our shepherd too. And our first job is to simply eat, <laughs> to simply feast upon the food that he gives us. Thus, in, this, in the first part this morning, I want to show you what the table is. And it, and it comes from a, you may not surprise, be a surprise to you, from a thread that goes through the whole Bible. Then secondly, we will consider a test of faith that's at the heart of this passage a test of faith for all of us. And then thirdly, we will see how this applies to us today. So he prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies in life and in death. 
and he delights to cause us to feast, and in that feasting, he is glorified. In that feasting, we glorify him. Well, the first part, God delights to richly satisfy his weary, vulnerable sheep. God delights to richly satisfy his weary, vulnerable sheep. There is something about God, something with God and us feasting. Something about this that runs through the whole Bible. It starts in the garden. If you remember that the very first thing that God does after putting Adam in charge of the garden is to invite him to feast. Feast upon every one of its delights, holding back only one. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Genesis 2.16. Then there is the Exodus. The people of, Israel, people of Israel enslaved by Pharaoh, they're about to be redeemed by God on this momentous night. And while the angel of death flies, flies about slaying the firstborn of all of Egypt, God commands the Jews to eat. <laughs> what? Aren't we supposed to run? No, no, no. Eat. In haste, your belt buckled, your bag packed, but Eat. On this first Passover, on this epic-shaping night, their big job is to dine. Exodus 12, 7 through 13. And then Israel goes through the wilderness, and a great focus, a great focus through the wilderness years is on this stuff that falls from the sky. The Jews called it mana. Mana, Hebrew for what is it? <laughs> Bread from heaven. Exodus 16, 14, and 15. And then when they come to the edge of the promised land, that the spies return with a two-part report. The first is visual. They bring back a solitary grape cluster so big, this is in Numbers 13, so big that they need two men and a pole to bring it back. Can you imagine that? I mean, we live in California, but it was much bigger than anything California can produce. It's massive. And they report that the land flows, the famous phrase, with milk and honey. It just flows everywhere. But there's a catch. The land is inhabited by giants, the descendants of the Nephilim of Genesis 6. This is in Numbers 13, verse 28. And all but one of the spies say, don't believe your lying eyes. Don't believe what you see with those grapes. God has not prepared a feast for us there. We will be the feast. Numbers 13, verse 32. The land devours its inhabitants. It's a test of faith. And despite Caleb's best efforts to comfort the people, to calm them, the people choose to believe their fears instead of fearing God. And God calls this rebellion, for while the Jews would eventually enter the promised land, their hearts would always remain in Egypt for generations to come. That is... Until a new Moses appears, leading his people on a new exodus, Jesus. And Jesus comes, and he's eating meal after meal with sinners. And in every meal, it ends up that Jesus becomes the host at that meal, welcoming anyone and everyone to come to him. He, he meets people where they are at, but never to leave people where they are at. He meets people where they are at, hosting meal after meal in order to call them to join him on his new exodus to the promised land. And as a vision of, of, of what this, this new exodus entails, he feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000 miraculously with bread. But then comes this, this striking moment, another striking moment in scripture where everything turns in exactly the wrong direction, at least according to the disciples. 
The crowds are growing, they're growing, they're growing. Why? Because their bellies are full. They're full of bread. And then it is at this point in John 6, beginning in verse 53, that Jesus declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. And everyone goes, what? Jesus, this is like bad church marketing. (laughs) You don't say that. What? What? But he goes on, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, as we just sang, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. What David could only see in part about this table, we now can see in full. Yahweh prepares the table, and that meal is the Son of God himself, Jesus, consumed by faith and repentance. Whoever Whoever consumes this meal, Jesus himself, may sit even in the presence of death itself and smile. Can, can smile and with, with, with a smile that mocks whatever death may want to throw at us. This person can sit even in the presence of his greatest enemy, the devil himself, at peace, unafraid free. Whoever consumes this meal can sit before his enemies with a smile and a pleasure and peace. Because of this meal, what matters now no no longer is the ferocity or the number of our enemies. But what matters now because of this table is is who our shepherd is, our shepherd who provides a meal and what David could only see in part, but we can see now is that the meal is the shepherd himself. The shepherd prepares a table for us and he goes on the table and becomes a sacrifice for us so that we may be forgiven of our sins, that we may close with God. And the good news is that Jesus did not stay dead. He was risen three days later, risen from the dead. And so whoever comes to this table and eats eats of the flesh of Jesus in the form of faith and repentance may share in that new resurrection life. All because of this table that our shepherd provides for us. Thus Jesus calls his disciples together on that last Passover, the Lord's table. It's like Jesus says, I've been waiting to do this. It's so funny. Of all the things Jesus could have said, I, I, I have been waiting for this one thing. I could not wait to get here to this moment. It's a meal. The first communion, the last Passover, the Lord's table, the bread signifying his body, the wine, his blood, his sacrifice as the Lamb of God given for the sins of the whole world. And Judas leaves and Jesus the next day goes to the table prepared for us by Yahweh. It seemed at first on that day that Jesus was only a meal for his enemies. It seemed at first that he was consumed by the giants of the land, that it was not for us. But in the great irony of history, it was as if with a condemned criminal, their last meal, the enemy's last meal. 
Because if you remember, when Jesus died, the tombs opened, the tombs opened, and his new life was already starting to be poured out in that moment. Thus, keep going through the Bible, and without any coordination, it's so striking, without any coordination from any church council, the church decided we're no longer going to worship on a Saturday, we're going to worship on a Sunday. Why? Because that was the day that Jesus was risen from the dead. And the church has always been characterized for some reason, for some reason, by eating. By eating. Acts 2 verse 42 says that what the church did all the time was eating, breaking bread together. And it's why in many places, as Jude 12 says, in many places and times with no coordination by any church council, from the very beginning, Christians' worship became known as a love feast. A love feast. And now, now we live between the tables. As we enjoy the Lord's table now, we, we, we look back to the feast provided for us at Calvary, and we look forward to a, a table that is soon to come. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9, the great wedding supper of the Lamb, a great multitude clothed in white linen, enjoying the rich feast provided for us by Yahweh, the feast that David could only see in part, but we then will see on that day face to face, and we will feast with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, world without end. Amen. There's something about God and eating. <laughs> There's something about God with eating because it is, I'm convinced when God invented eating, when God invented the notion of a dinner table and people around a table eating food, he, he invented that with a template already in his mind in the first place. That, temp that template, that picture that he already had in his mind in the first place is his son coming and dying for us and giving up of himself for us that he would be consumed in judgment in our place so that we would have life. This is why Christians pray before our meals. It transforms, the gospel transforms even a simple meal, the, the simplest of meals with the simplest of foods has cosmic significance to us now. It's why you see weird Christians all running around, you know, at Chick-fil-A, praying before they eat their little hamburger. Why? Why? Because there's cosmic significance in this moment now. There's something about God and meals because they picture Jesus, his precious son given for us. Okay, all of that now brings us to a problem and a paradox for Christians in this life, especially for seasons when our culture is in decline, especially when our culture is in decline. For we too, we too, like, the, like Israel on the edge of the promised land, we have a challenge of faith before us. There are giants in the land all around us. But our God promises to prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies with, so, with blessings so big it'll take giants to carry the grapes. So the question before us is, which vision of the future will we believe? Which vision of the future will we believe? That we will be fed a meal or that we will be the meal in our day? That same question is before us. 
So to think and feel rightly about this, we must not assume of ourselves that we do think rightly about it. We are sheep. We are sheep, and after all, we are prone to wander, led by our own devices. We are sheep. So then, we need to rightly understand, we need to make sure that we rightly understand the kind of age and the kind of war we exist in. We said last week that Christians go to war, but we need to understand what kind of war we are in. And this means understanding and remembering what are the weapons that we are allowed to use and not use. And this is not always obvious. That, that night, after Israel rebelled against God, they went home and they cried to their pillows in fear. And to our generation, that looks legitimate. That looks legitimate, you know, to, to weep and to cry and regret. That, that looks pious. Oh, he's so sorry for him for his sins, but God saw through it and he found their tears disgusting. Why? Because sometimes rebellion looks pious. Sometimes rebellion looks pious and sometimes the pious ones poo-poo the Caleb's who are the ones who actually believe. So all of this to say, this brings me to the point here is that it reminds me of C.S. Lewis's great book, That Hideous Strength. Um, one of the geniuses of Lewis's book is that it pictures for us the kind of battle we are in. And, and by the way, I'm not changing the subject from a meal. We will come back to this table set before us in a moment. But in this book, that hideous strength, that the battle for the cosmos wages between evil forces, who are ironically by Lewis uh, referred to as, by the acronym N-I-C-E, NICE, the, force, the evil forces who are called NICE, I think that's funny because our generation, our Christian generation, is so, so consumed with obeying the 11th commandment, thou shalt always be nice. And we become cowards this way. But So the, the evil ones are called nice, and the, the, the good side, the, the, they're a little band of people at a place called St. Anne's led by a Dr. Ransom, Dr. Ransom who pictures Christ. And... Uh, the great irony in the strangeness of the book is the same irony and strangeness of Psalm 23. And this point of Psalm 23 is that while the forces of nice are plotting all kinds of evil things, the, the overthrow of humanity itself, what it means to be human, and all that is good and life-giving. So all of this is happening, and all the while, this little band, the good guys at St. Anne's around Dr. Ransom, are just sort of waiting they don't do much. It's really strange. Um, perhaps Lewis is channeling Titus 2.13, which describes the church's main activity in this age as waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting. Well, in the book, there is some activity. There's a, there's a young married couple who discover, as if for the first time, true eros, true true pure love between a man and a woman. They, they rediscover this and they, they were drifting apart and they come back together again and that's, that's great. And the little band around Ransom, they do things like they garden. <laughs> they garden? It's like, what kind of action movie is this? You know, um, they, they garden and they make the grounds of St. Anne lush and beautiful like a restored Eden. They dance. They play music. And to top it off, they have a bear that talks and they take care of the bear, you know? It's like, what is going on here? And then, by the end of the story, the villains have all perished. And it is one of the most satisfying endings to any book you've ever read. I just, 
I won't spoil it for you, and I haven't spoiled it for you. The end, even though I tell you they all perish, you need to read how. <laughs> one of the best endings ever. And it's at this point that one of those around Dr. Ransom, a character named McPhee, says this. It could be right good history without mentioning you and me or most of those present. I'd be greatly obliged if anyone would tell me what we have done. Always apart from feeding the pigs and raising some very decent vegetables. He's like, what? Okay, it's all over? We won? What did we do? (laughs) What did we do? McPhee's point is, what exactly have we been doing that won the day? We planted gardens, that couple over there got back together, that's great. We danced, we cooked, we ate, but what did we do that any historian would record? And it's the same sort of irony embedded in Psalm 23, in the valley of the shadow of death. You want me to do what? You want me to eat? Ask the disciples, after it was all over and death was destroyed and a new race of resurrected Adams Adams and Eves are coming out of the grave and being reborn, and someone comes along and says, so what did you do? (laughs) Think about the gospel stories. Like, what did you guys do? Well, let's see. We followed Jesus around. We ate lots of meals with him. Come to think of it, um, (laughs) that's about it. (laughs) What did you do? And then evil was vanquished. God's charge to us now is no different. God says, I will fight the battles that are decisive, decisive, and they will be won on my timetable, which lots of times you will think God's taking his good sweet time, but it's my timetable. Um, so in the meantime, I want you to wage war with the weapons that I give you in the way that I instruct you to use them. Because God calls us, God calls us, his church, to serve as a living parable of the kingdom that is to come. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world, and so that's why we pray for it to come, because that's the better kingdom. That's what we want, so we pray for it to come, and then after we pray, we do the miracle. We do the miracle. We create it, believing that prayer. We create the kingdom to come, believing that prayer. What God wants most of us in the valley of the shadow of death is to feast upon Christ. To feast upon Christ and then nourished by that meal, we create the world that should be and will be one day. God, God, clears out a portion of the valley of the shadow of death to let the light shine in that a restored Eden would be displayed here in the presence of all of his enemies. And at the heart of it is the consumption of a meal to feast upon Christ. So what does this mean? Um, We are in a war. We are in a great cosmic battle right now, and it looks like all of the forces of nice are winning at every turn. But, so so where do I fight? Where do I fight? All of this to say, the places of greatest cosmic significance for you to engage in for stemming the flow and rebuilding out of the ruins, rebuilding this culture, this nation, whatever we're talking about, the places of greatest cosmic significance are places like, well, 
wherever you are, wherever you are, your dinner table, your cubicle, your child rearing, your literal garden, your neighborhood association, this church, these are the places with life and death consequences for the entire cosmos. And the way that we, the way that we contribute to the war, the, way, the primary way that we fight this battle is by eating the meal prepared for us, not just once when you pray to prayer, not just, not just once way back then, but every day feasting upon Christ and it's from this meal that we are nourished then to rebuild for a certain purpose, which we'll get to in a moment, to rebuild in the middle of all of this darkness, Eden. And by this, God is glorified. Because by such weapons, by this act, by, by this discipline, by this um, war, form of war making, God portrays to our enemies that they are already defeated. God portrays to the enemies, to his enemies and to our enemies, that the kingdom is already breaking in. The new Eden is already coming. The new race, the, the, the new race that they want to create by their own hands, God is already doing it by the resurrection of his son. Because the new Eden is already breaking in, in your home, in this church, wherever Christians are found. So, this is what he calls us to. This is how he wins. This is how he makes war. Okay, but there, there must be something that we do, you say. Yeah, yes, there, there is something that we do. We, we wait. The primary thing that we do is wait, but surely there's something we do. Yes. And the, the first thing I think is utterly obvious, feast upon Christ. Feast upon Christ. There is no other starting point. Do you want to be useful? Do you want to be useful for the glory of the Lord? Do you want to be useful for the transformation of your world? Then feast upon Christ. There is no other starting point. As we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, perhaps as, as you face death itself, there is nothing else to do except the starting point number one is to feast upon Christ. Christ himself is the meal set before us. Jesus commands us to abide in him and our feasting in him. So we feast upon him. And by that feasting, we gain the grace and the power to create little Edens out of our little patches of existence called our lives. All that God has called you to in this life Jesus is sufficient for it. All that he calls us, all that he calls you to, every place where he takes you to, you are called to make that place a, 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 a little Eden, something new there. And the way that you do it is not by working harder or finding just the right tactic, but by feasting upon Christ. And as you, as you consume this meal, you will bring him with you there and it will become new. It will become new. We must feast on Christ. <clears throat> Number two, we must repent of our functional atheism. Functional atheism. By functional atheism, I mean our pervasive unbelief that, as I said two weeks ago, that we are somehow going to be the first generation that is let down by God. We must repent from that dour, unbelieving pessimism to looking optimistically for his deliverance, for his salvation, for his coming and his power. 
We are disgusted by the fact that our political overlords have no fear of God, but too often that's only the pot calling the kettle black. We fear man, we fear what the commies are doing more than we fear God. Our first task must be to repent of our fears and our tears to belief that our Lord prepares a table before us as a sign to our enemies that their days are numbered. He will bring the miraculous destruction of our enemies or their salvation one way or the other. He will do it. Just as he did with the Tower of Babel, he's still in that business. He's still in that business. And this, I believe, If we repent to this faith, this then should restore us to, number three, a jolly good sense of humor. A jolly good sense of humor. Not, what I'm not saying is, oh, you know, as you see the destruction of your nation and your culture and your society, you should just like laugh about it and post memes and just ha ha ha. That's not what I'm saying. But as we feast at the table, we, we are nourished enough to see that this was all tried before at the Tower of Babel a long time ago. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) And we know how this turns out. We just want to stay clear of the blast radius, but we know how this turns out. This will end the same way. Our God is on his throne, and he reigns. He reigns. Jesus is not only crucified, he is not only resurrected, but he was ascended. Our Yahweh reigns. Our Yahweh reigns, and he continues to provide everything that we need. He may, in our view, again, take his sweet time, but he will not change. He is not accommodating himself to our changing whims. Our Father is in heaven, and his name will be hallowed. He does not ask us to pray for anything that he will not say yes to. (laughs) You, you, You get that? He does not ask us to pray for anything that's just a setup. Oh, it was just a test. I'm not really going to say yes to that. It was just a test for you. No, he is in heaven, and his name will be hallowed, and you will see it. You will see it. We, we should look for this. Which, so so as, we, as we believe this, as we believe this, on the one hand, it should give us stiffer spines. It should give us spines of courage. But spines of courage result in a confident laughter at the shenanigans of our modern version of the Babel builders. They will get far, but they, in the end, will get nowhere. They will get far, but in the end, they will get nowhere. Our Father will see to it. Our Father will see to it. This does not mean that we don't take action out there. We do, and we will. But we will not do so from hatred. We will not do so from fear. We will do so with a confident, jolly joy that our God reigns. That our God reigns and we will see his deliverance. We will see it. So thus, we will do the work out there. The neighborhoods around this church still need to be taken for Christ. There is still much work to do out there. This people all around us still need to hear about the bread and the wine and the table offered to them, but we wield our weapons with a sort of pirate jolliness, a sort of pirate jolliness, a sort of surprise that takes people by surprise by the joy embedded in all of it and the freedom. We still fight, but we understand what kind of war we are in and we understand the weapons we are given and we understand how we are to use them with a jolly joy. 
And then number three, we must realize that this is how God saves the world. This is how God saves the world. We must realize that it is often by recreating Eden in your home, in this church, in your life. This is how God saves the world. As the wolves encircle the table that God prepares for us, they end up smelling those rich foods. And sometimes, sometimes they realize that the food that they're currently eating is full of weebles and only leaves them emaciated. And they then want your food. They become jealous, and by that jealousy, God saves them. God draws them. God attracts them to ask you, where did you get that food? And then you must answer, and you can tell them where the rich feast is found, in Christ. In Christ. Sometimes the world will become jealous, and they will envy you and hate you for it and mock you, mock you for living a 1950s lifestyle. They'll call you, leave it to beaver, whatever. But that's only because of envy and hatred. But when the others are jealous and they demand an answer, you know where to provide the meal for them. You know where to show them where this is found. It is found in Christ himself. He provides a meal for us, the meal that leads to eternal life, even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. God takes us to the brink and provides a meal in the presence of our enemies to save some of those enemies. So, what do we do with this? We attend to our families. We attend to our families. Men, attend to your wife. Wives, attend to your husband. Reconnect in in eros, in, in deep love fitted to one another. Men sacrificing in love. Women helping the men sacrifice with respect and honor. Plant a garden. Bring your kids in on it. Realize that you, it is not all about you. This is how God is saving the world, by planting little Edens and letting the world see it. Planting little Edens in the presence of his enemies, that his enemies would be drawn to salvation. And number four, lastly, we must all cultivate a new, true fear of the Lord. Cultivate a new, true fear of the Lord. There is nothing more important than this to come here, to come here on Sunday morning and to be able to worship and to be able to feast upon your Lord with a holy and reverent fear, especially on communion Sundays when we rehearse again the Passover feast of our Lord. This moment of worship, this is the central moment of all of our lives. Everything grows out of this moment. And when we grow in a fear of the Lord, then every other fear fades into the background and we are able to walk into this world constructive and productive and fruitful, unafraid, unafraid, because we have this greater fear, a fear of the Lord. Um, After Psalm 23, we were going to take a few weeks to talk about worship to talk about worship and to to celebrate how this church has done worship so well in the past and to consider our future in worship. But at the heart of worship is worship, fearing a holy, great God who in his awesome, holy, holy, holiness has provided for us the richest feast, who has humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross for us so that we would eat of this richest of feasts and be raised to eternal life, that we would be able to live without any fear, that we would be able to feast in the presence of our enemies, even death itself, and smile 
and confidence. This, this moment is unlike any other. This is the most important moment in our lives to meet here and worship Him. Thus, it is imperative for us that we come and be able to worship Him in awe and reverence and fear. For the last few generations, as, a, as an American church, we've told the kids that you don't have to fear the Lord. What's most important is that God would entertain you, that God would make you feel good about yourself. And generations, the, the generations that have followed have believed us and taken us at our word at that. And they, thus, we are reaping the consequences of that now that they do not fear the Lord. There is no fear of God in the eyes of this generation, and yet that can be turned In fact, that will be turned. God will do it. But everything grows out of this moment, this rich feast, especially on the days when we celebrate communion and come to the table prepared for us by our Lord. So, in other words, all of this to say, invest in what's before you, Christian. Invest in what's before you as if it has cosmic significance. Invest in what's before you, feasting upon Christ, nourishing yourself by Christ, by by learning more about him, by walking with him, by praying to him, by talking about him with your friends and family in this church. Feast upon Christ and you will be nourished then to apply grace to that, that place wherever you are and, and you will be able to bring to it the grace that it deserves because that little place is a place of cosmic significance. It has cosmic significance because God has made it so, and it is by such little moments that God will save the world. So let's pray now. Let's pray for faith and repentance to walk in this word. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would grant us faith faith to repent of our unbelief, faith to take you at your word that you do indeed prepare a meal for us and this meal will nourish us even through death, even to new life on the other side of death. And this nourishment will allow us to face down every giant that we may face in this land because you are with us, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. It's all because of you. Our life, our hope, everything is in you. And you provide for us all that we need. And we say thank you. Thank you and we praise your name. In Jesus' name, amen. The king that we just sang about, the king who reigns over all things, he is your king, Christian. He is our world's king. He's our nation's king. He is our culture's king. Go resting in him, expecting him to bring the power and the deliverance that you need, that we all need. Go in confidence, resting on him. Amen.